Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Galatians. Once more, this Lord's Day, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Hear now the word of the living God. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, living God, we ask that in this brief time, as your word is proclaimed, we ask that you would assist us. Grant us faith, increase our faith, strengthen our understanding, rise our affections and adorations for the Christ, save the lost. We are helpless in this next few moments if your spirit does not work. So we pray that you would assist us in these things. May the preaching of the word of Christ be his word to his covenant people in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. These four Sundays in December prior to Christmas, we are looking at two verses of Scripture. I know that that may seem strange, for we often walk passage by passage through larger books. But here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, I think we see four particular elements that are important for us to understand at all times of the year. But as we consider the incarnation of the Son of God, boys and girls, that word incarnation means putting on flesh, becoming flesh. That is what Jesus has done. Just to review, Paul is writing a letter to a church that's wrestling with the gospel. There are many in this church who are Gentiles, who've come to trust in Christ. But some false teachers have come along and told them, you have to add to what Christ has done to be saved. You have to add circumcision, the rite or the sign of the old covenant, to the work of Christ. We in our day will often encounter individuals who will say that Christ is the Savior, but there is work you must do. Paul writes this letter, and here, in the midst of his argument that Christ is sufficient, he gives us four things to consider about the coming of Jesus into the world. We looked last week at the first element of this, when the fullness of the time had come. The eternal Son of God came when the time was right, when the prophetic word was ripe to be accomplished. When the times of this world were perfect, that His coming may reach its maximum sufficiency. God's timing, not ours. When the fullness of the time had come, today we will see this phrase, Lord willing, God sent forth His Son. And in the two weeks that remain, we'll consider what it means for the eternal Son of God to be born of a woman and born of a woman under, responsible to, required to obey the law. 
Well, today, let's look at this phrase, God sent forth His Son. If, Lord willing, next week we will consider the humanity of Christ, today I would submit to you that we see in this passage the divinity of Christ. Did you know, friend, that Christ, Christ Jesus, is not only truly man, but He is and has always been truly God. I want us to just stare at this phrase, God sent forth His Son. I want us to meditate on these words and consider three things this morning. What does this phrase, sent forth, mean? What does it imply? Let's look at it together. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son. This phrase, sent forth, points us firstly then to the pre-existence of the Son. Boys and girls, did you know that when Jesus was born of Mary some 2,000 years ago, it was His physical birth. But He, who has always been the eternal Son of God, didn't come into existence for the first time. There might even be Christians out there, baby Christians, who tend to think that God was Father, and and then at a particular point in time, He had a son born of a woman, and, and that's when the Son came to be. But notice what the text says rather clearly. God sent forth His Son. The eternally existent One. The One who existed prior to His human birth. This requires us to consider a whole host of scriptures. You can turn there with me if you like, but who can forget that passage of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. Interestingly enough, we've seen the phrase in the beginning at least once more, haven't we? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. Here in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Not became the Word. Not was created the Word, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The one that the Father sent forth is none other than the eternal Son of God, the one who, according to his divine nature and person, has always existed. He had to exist to be sent. This is why it's important for us to consider the truths of the creeds we confess. Some of you may wonder, why do we confess? We did it this morning. Why do we confess ancient creeds in our worship? Well, it's because the church of Jesus Christ has been always a creedal people, an I believe people. That's what creed means, I believe. And part of the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the other ancient historic creeds, part of their declaration is the fact that the Son of God has always been. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. One other theological note, it's important for us to consider that 
the Son of God did not become the Son of the Father in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Yes, He became the Son of Mary, but the Son has always been the Son of the Father. Back in Abraham's day, back in Noah's day, back in Moses' day, back in Adam and Eve's day, the Son of God was the Son of the Father. These are important truths for us to consider as we will see practically in just a moment. But the writers of the New Testament are deeply concerned with these truths. Sometimes you'll hear modern pastors say, well, we don't want to get too deep into theology because that's not really what reaches people. Brothers and sisters, if the history of the church, but particularly the the first century of Christianity is of any account, Notice what it was that the apostles were deeply concerned about. Who Christ is. Listen for just a moment to one of the early hymns of the Christian church. What kind of music do you like to sing? Listen to the kinds of singing that they sang in the early church. Perhaps one of the earliest hymns that we have record of. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Colossians chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. In the 1900s and the 2000s, our worship wars are about what kind of music should accompany very brief choruses of praise to God. But in the early church, the concern was, we want to sing deeply about who Christ is. He is the eternal Son of God. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, we read these words. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did, notice, by doing what? By sending His own Son. Here, Paul picks up on the theme we'll look at next week. In the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or how about that glorious theme of Christ? through Paul's pen to a different church. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, listen to these words. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The one that the Father sent to bring about your salvation is equal with God. God. He is God. Verse 7 of Philippians 2, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The first thing that this phrase sent forth points us to is that there was one who has always existed who was sent, not one who came to be. Oh, certainly, he, he assumed 
our full and complete humanity at a moment in time, and Lord willing, we'll study that. We'll mine the riches of that together next week. But for today, your Savior is God, the one who has always existed. Now, briefly, there have been attempts to tinker with this. Many of these happened in the early church, which is why the writing of creeds was so important. What is it that we confess about the pre-existent one? The one who existed prior to his birth. Comes on the scene. And one of the things that gets him in such great trouble with the religious leaders of the day, the shepherds of souls in the first century, if you will, before Abraham was, I am. But in the early church, from without and sometimes from within, there were those who said, you know, God is not three persons, but one person who just shows up in different modes throughout history. In the Old Testament, he's father. In the Gospels, he's son. And in the period of time of the church and beyond, he's spirit. This was called a heresy. And the Nicene Creed answered it. Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That one was called modalism, by the way. Here's another one. Well, there was a time when Jesus was created by the Father. And therefore, there was a time when He was not. You know, one of the cults in the 300s had their own worship songs. It was the Arian cult followers of Arius, and they literally sang songs that went like this. There once was a time when the sun was not. That was their slogan. That was their worship music, if you will. And so our brother Athanasius, at great peril and risk to himself, staked his life on the biblical claim that there was never a time when the sun was not. And that view won the day, and it too was enshrined in our Nicene Creed. By the way, that cult still exists in a recycled form today. It's called Jehovah's Witnesses. They come to your door, and they say, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And you get excited for a moment if you don't know who they are, because you believe in Jesus, and He's your Savior and they start to talk to you and you say, well, I need to, Jesus died for sin. Yes, 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 he died for sins. If you ask the right questions, you will get to the point where you see that they do not believe that he is the eternal son of God. Satan's bag of tricks really is not that big, brothers and sisters. There were others who said, well, no, Jesus was not created. He did always exist. And right away, after that last one, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, good. But they would say, but he's not equal as the Son to the Father. He's less than the Father. However God the Father is, he's a little less God. He is subordinate to the Father. The early church answered that again in the Nicene Creed. What did they say? That he was, quote, being of one substance with the Father. Boys and girls... The second person of the Trinity is as much God as the first person of the Trinity. 
Here's one. Jesus was just an ordinary man, but special. And at a moment in time, God picked him and adopted him to be the Son of God. You see, these errors flowed in the early church. And if they flowed in the early church, sometimes at the very end of the apostolic ministry to their followers, people who sat at the feet of the apostles had to combat these heresies. Who are we to think that we don't need to think theologically about the Son of God? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Being sent forth means His Son already was. This phrase helps us to see firstly then the pre-existence of the Son. But secondly, it helps us to do another thing. It's very much related to the first, but it helps us to understand this, boys and girls. That phrase helps us to see that Jesus, the Son of God, is God. There is a divine status, if you will, to the one sent forth. Pre-existence and divine. Now it says that he was sent. He was sent forth as our mediator, the one to stand in between us and God. But let me just take you for a moment to this thought. That when you're reading the Gospels, as we will see next week, you are seeing a true man. But, as Paul would say elsewhere, you are seeing the true and living God. God walked among us. Scripture attests to the divinity of Christ. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. You can turn there if you want, but let me just read this in your hearing. Even from the pages of the Old Testament, we hear of the divinity of Christ. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. God, our righteousness. Jeremiah, long before the coming of Christ, long before the birth of Christ, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, when your Savior comes, the one who will be your righteousness, he will be known as God. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 9, does he not? Or how about Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5, there Paul writes these words, speaking of Jesus. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, 
the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Now, as a side note, boys and girls, when you're learning to read and write, there are little things that they teach you to put on your paper called commas. And commas are important. I think this English translation renders it better than others because it makes it clear with the comma that Christ is the eternally blessed God. Well, Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, we won't turn there, but it proclaims the divinity of Christ. Lastly, 1 John, 1 John 5 and verse 20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Hermann Bavink, the Dutch theologian of a previous century, says this, quote, In Christ, the invisible God has become visible. You see, this simple phrase from Paul's pen in Galatians 4 means a lot. And we need to meditate on it. We don't need to read through it too quickly. When the fullness of the time had come, there's a lot in that phrase. But secondly, God sent forth His Son. He sent forth one who already existed. One who was and is and will forever be divine. Now, One of the things that we have covered before in our pulpit ministry is who Christ is. But it's worth just taking a moment to remind you that when Jesus was sent forth, the Son was sent forth and born of a woman, this produced no change in His divinity or His divine attributes, nor were any of His divine attributes limited Jesus didn't become slightly less than God for 33 years so He could be man and then take on more Godness later. God is unchanging. So it is best for us to understand that the eternal Son of God changed not, but assumed a very changeable, malleable, growable, learnable human Nature, And this we see in the Chalcedonian Creed, which is captured for us in our own confession of faith. Now, some of these words are technical. But let me just read a few phrases from the Creed of Chalcedon. It's perhaps one of the forgotten creeds of the early church. It's all about Jesus. A whole paragraph just about the second person of the Trinity. Listen to what it says. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days when the fullness of time had come, 
for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. And then there's a very technical remaining paragraph where the early church in the 400s was asked to consider how the two natures of Christ work together. Perhaps we'll touch on that next week. Brothers and sisters, I guess what I'm saying to you is that when we read that our Savior was sent forth by God, there's a lot in those few words. The one that has always existed at a moment in time came. But He was divine. He was sent. But He was divine. We also need to remember that when we think of Jesus coming, it's not really like the old hymn writer said when he penned that phrase that we often sing sometimes, or perhaps we sing the other verses and don't sing this one. He left his Father's throne above. You know, according to his divinity, Christ didn't go anywhere. He wasn't localized anymore. So as to say that His divinity was only here now. No, the second person of the Son, of the the Godhead, was unchanging. And yet, this is the one that the Father sent. Another Dutch theologian, Willemus Abrakel, what a name, wrote these words, to consider Christ in His divine nature is an entirely different matter than viewing Him in His mediatorial office and administration. Respecting the latter, He is said to be less, to be a servant, to pray, to receive, and to be sent. But no one could be surety and bring man to God, but He who was God and man in one person. And this is where all of this high theology becomes very practical for just a moment. Your Savior, listen to me, your substitute, your Redeemer, is like unto you in every way according to His humanity. But He is at the same time fully, truly God. And as he hung on the cross, according to his humanity, suffering and dying, according to his divinity, there was an eternal weight of his sacrifice. Boys and girls, have you ever thought to yourself, how is it? They're teaching me in Sunday school. And mom and dad teach me in family worship. Pastor Ryan and others teach from the pulpit that Jesus died and he hung on the cross for a few hours and that his sacrifice covers the sins of all the people who trust in him forever. How can three to six hours accomplish an eternity of paying for sin? Because the person who died is God. He suffered and died according to His humanity, but the weight of His divinity means that everything that He did was glorious and perfect and of infinite value. You have one who died for you, who as He spilled His blood made sufficient atonement for your sins for all of eternity. There will never be a day when the angels of heaven cry out, there is more that is needed to the atonement. Never. 
because the one sent for you was and is God. Yes, he did some things according to one nature. Dying, learning, growing, keeping the law, suffering. But at the same time, he did things according to his divine nature. Upholding the universe by the very word of his power. Think about this. We often hear during this season hymns or carols. And they say things like, away in a manger. Think about this. At the selfsame time that Jesus was laying in swaddling cloths in a manger, not able to feed himself without the care of his feeble mother. At the same time, he was upholding all of the universe, all of the galaxies, all of the stars by his very word. Because he wasn't just. He isn't just truly man. He's truly God. Does this not raise your affections for He that is your Savior? Listen to the hymn writer writing Christmas carols in the 400s. Just two verses. But listen. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in His hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth. Our full homage, worship, praise to demand. But then listen to the final verse. At His feet, that is, the Son of God, the six-winged seraph. Where have we seen the six-winged seraph? Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At His feet, the sixth-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. The early church hymn writer was telling everyone, be quiet. Don't ponder things that are earthly minded. There is a great and cosmic work afoot. God has come. The God that the seraphim worship, the cherubim praise. He is the one who has come. And He is the one, as we will see next week, who put on our flesh, dwelt among us, so that He is the very image of the invisible God. And this is the one who came thirdly and finally for a purpose. Notice finally what Paul says. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Your redemption and your adoption as a child of God required no less than God Himself coming. What was the purpose? Well, the purpose was the very love of God. Redeeming sinners. Redeeming those who were lawbreakers under God's law that we might receive, and then what does it say? The adoption as sons. God sent forth His Son 
that you and I might become sons of God. Timothy George, a modern writer, commenting on this verse, said this, One could hardly find a more succinct summary of the Christian gospel than the expression, God sent his son. Implicit in these words are two ideas, both of which are fundamental to a holistic, Christological doctrine of Christ. Christological affirmation, divine intentionality, and eternal deity. The coming of Jesus Christ into human history was not an accidental happening in late antiquity. End quote. No, the phrase, God sent forth his Son, implies for us, brothers and sisters, that the one that was sent already was. That the one who was sent is God and ought to be worshipped as God. You remember the words of our brother Thomas, the doubting one. Upon seeing the resurrected Christ, he exclaims, My Lord, And my God. But in addition to the idea that the one who was sent is God, we see that there was a purpose. God does not do things aimlessly. He gives us the answer, but even if he put the period at the end of God sent forth his son, period, we would, because of all that we know from the Scripture about God, be required to say God has done something for a purpose. God doesn't do anything aimlessly. He sent forth His Son. Now contrast the eternal glory of the pre-existent, always existent Son of God. The one who was with God, who was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. The one who upholds all things by the word of His power. The one that the angels worship and praise. The one that elsewhere in Scripture, the angels are pictured as deeply interested in as they watch His redemptive work. This is the one who came. Contrast that with you and your lowly brokenness and sinfulness. You are not one of the holy seraphim, rightly singing praises to God perfectly. The pitch of your singing is flat or sharp, because you bring a fist raised in the face of Christ. Your life is full of the glory of self. You've fallen short of the glory of this one who was sent forth. And he would be perfectly just to send a flood of wrath and destroy you. But because God's design was the loving redemption of sinners for his own glory. And because God's design was that sinners, sons and daughters of Satan, receive adoption as sons of God. This one has come. And as we will see next week, he walked our filthy streets, enduring, as it were, 
all kinds of suffering. But this one was then and is now the very living God. When you come to Christ, you are coming to God. When you see Christ healing, you see God healing. When you see Christ redeeming, you see God redeeming. When you hear by the voice of the Spirit the loving words of Christ and John, come to me and I will not cast you away. You have the very voice of God in your ears. And you say to yourself, but I'm a wicked sinner. My thoughts are so full of dirt. My actions are so lacking in righteousness. My deeds, my words, they don't measure up. God Himself has redeemed you. So, brothers and sisters, love, cherish the phrase, God sent forth His Son. If you're here today and you don't know the Savior, the Bible says that in the preaching of Christ, Christ's voice is present. In the preaching of Christ, there is an offer of Christ to you. This eternal God, who put on flesh, who perfectly kept the law, who died according to His humanity to pay for your sins, the weight of His divinity, upholding that sacrifice and giving it eternal value, that one says to you, come to Me. Come to Me. I will clean you from your sins. I will perfectly atone for all of them. I will receive you. I will adopt you. I will unite you by My Spirit to Myself. And I will take you home. The gods of this world know not the glories. The religion of the atheist know not the glory of this phrase. The self-reliant agnostic who says, there may be a God, there may not be. I'll just be as good as I can be. Knows not the glory of this phrase. God sent forth His Son. Come. Come. That's His purpose. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that You would assist us as we consider not only the fullness of time, but the sending of the eternal Son of God. We pray that we may see in our Savior, yes, true humanity, but also a true divinity in one person. Cause our affections to rise as we meditate on this glorious reality. In Jesus' name, amen.